This is Internet Marketing for Smart People Radio. I'm Robert Bruce, and I'm asking questions today of a writer many of you will know. And for those of you that don't, well, let's just say I urge you to get to know him and his work. Robert Greene is the best-selling author of The 48 Laws of Power, The 33 Strategies of War, The Art of Seduction, and with rapper 50 Cent, The 50th Law. He's also consultant to several well-known but undisclosed business executives and even sits on the board of directors of American Apparel. Robert, thanks for getting here. It sounds like you're a very, very busy man these days. Well, uh, thanks for having me on the show, Robert. Um, I'm only super busy because I'm working on another book. When I work on a book, I just tend to drop everything else and work seven days a week, 10 hours a day. So it's, it's, I'm sort of in the eye of the storm. I'm busy. Yeah. Lock the doors, draw the shades, head down at the keyboard. Yeah. I mean, uh, and it's for a reason. Um, I find with anything creative, you have to be very intensive. the, The more the ideas start coming to you, you have to suffer a little bit and, uh, you know, you complain, you don't have much of a life, but, the the work really improves the more intensely you, you you focus on it. Well, I would like to ask you a couple of questions about your latest or newest yet to be released book at the end here. So we'll we'll circle back around to that. But I want to start with how you became a writer. Huh? This is I'm, I'm I'm fascinated. I to be honest, very encouraged by little bits and pieces of your story that I've heard of your work history. Um, how you came to be a writer, and I'm wondering if you'll just give me uh, you know, the short version of it, but I want to hear about your struggles and successes leading up to the writing and publication of The 48 Laws of Power. Okay, I'll try and keep it brief. I mean, I, I was started writing, obviously, when I was a kid. I've always been writing, and it was sort of, a, I guess, my main love in life. And in the, my 20s, I lived in New York, and I actually worked for magazines and did journalism, uh, which I didn't really like. I remember one time I did an article and an editor had lunch with me and he proceeded to say that I was one of the worst writers he had ever known. And then in the 90s, I suppose, or late 80s, 90s, I started working in Hollywood, uh, you know, screenwriting. And these were forms of writing that weren't really fitting with me. I wasn't happy with them. And then um, in 1995, an old friend from my days at Berkeley where I went to university he was involved with a, a new school that was being started up by Benetton in Italy, a media school, and he invited me to come out there to help write the catalog that would announce the school, something weird like that. And while I was there, it was sort of a disaster, and I met this man who had always also invited there, a Dutchman named Joost Elfers. He's a, he was a book packager, which basically means a person who kind of produces books and puts the whole thing together, an author and a design and, a, and all, and sells it to publishers. Anyway, we were in Venice, Italy, and he, we were both kind of depressed about this experience in Italy, and he asked if I had any ideas for books. And I kind of, it was, I guess the gods were smiling, and it was a good day, and I sort of improvised four ideas, of which one of them was the seed of the 48 Laws of Power, and he kind of seized the the with that one, which was the best idea, I kind of had already narrated the first story in the 48 Laws of Power to him that day. And in my head, I kind of had an idea about what it could be. Anyway, he he said, look, if you ever have the time, write up a treatment, 
And if I like it, I'll pay you to live. I'll give you a monthly check while you write at least like half of the book. Hmm. And so I, I borrowed money from my, I quit my crappy Hollywood job, borrowed money from my parents. And I wrote, I worked like a, a fiend on this treatment because I saw, you know, this is my one chance to get out of bad jobs and it, do what I probably loved. And unless I'm, you can correct me here if I'm wrong, but you were no spring chicken at this point either. Well, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> yeah, I was probably about um, 36, 37. You're right. Well, when you say, when you say last chance, last shot, kind of, you know, that's not necessarily, and we both know, objectively true, but I, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I've yeah. got the feeling of that exactly. Yeah, I, I'm a late bloomer, so that's true. Um, and uh, it was more like, you know, this seemed like the fit. All the other things weren't fitting. And if I blew this, who knows what would happen. So I gave it, if you know my books, you know that there's a, in the war book, there's a thing called the death ground strategy. Hmm. Well, this was death ground for me. I worked, he loved the treatment and then, uh, you know, paid me to live as he promised a nice amount. And after half the book was written, he sold it to Penguin for a good amount. And it's been, uh, pretty smooth sailing ever since. So I have definitely have this man to thank. I will thank him the rest of my life. And he was a, he was a great person, Yost. Uh, and I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't met him. I, maybe I would have found my way to book some other, some other route. But that's sort of how I ended up where I am. The Art of Seduction was published in 2001. And it is a powerful book that covers many aspects of attraction, authenticity, storytelling, and, well, closing the deal, so to speak. And if any of that sounds familiar to you out there listening, you'll realize why I've asked Robert here today. Um, and that's to talk about the application of certain parts of, of this book, The Art of Seduction, to writing and marketing. Chapter 9 is titled Keep Them in Suspense, which uh, this is of course, related to the age-old cliffhanger technique of storytelling. What's the thing, if you can pull out one thing uh, that you found to be the most important aspect of using suspense? The one thing you have to keep in mind is the, 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 not, the 24 chapters in that part of the book that kind of go in sequence. So you're, you're moving through a process. So the keeping them in suspense comes at a certain point in the seduction. I wouldn't say you would ever want to start that way and even maybe in marketing you wouldn't want it that wouldn't be your first maneuver um that said um i link it very much to the art of storytelling and i found you know my books i i always tell stories in them uh from history in this particular chapter if i remember correctly it's the story of casanova and there's something about hearing a story that puts people in a frame of mind in which they open up towards any kind of seduction, any kind of sell. And I think what it has to do with is is the sense of being led along by somebody else, by a writer, by a storyteller. I even link it up to the childhood feeling of being carried by someone in their arms and you don't know where they're taking you, or to being in a haunted house and you don't know what's going to happen next. And that mm. moment of suspense where the author, the filmmaker, keeps you in this, this state where you're at a crossroads. Hmm, what will happen next? You, your spirit is open. You're not resistant. You're not thinking of yourself. 
you are so vulnerable to any kind of seductive maneuver. And so in an actual seduction, I, I, I give the advice that it's, it's like a play or a story that you're involving this woman or man in. You're literally creating a drama. And the element that they don't know what's literally going to happen next um, it's not that you're completely unpredictable or that you could pull out a knife. Let's, you know, it's, it's all within a certain limits. But the sense that may, I don't know what this person is going to do next is extremely powerful. And when it comes to you know, marketing and advertising, we live in a world where people are so saturated. We're so bored with the ads that are out there. Even the Internet ads, they're just so predictable. You just shut them out. You, 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 no one's paying any attention to that. If a marketing person or, or an ad person comes up with something that isn't what you've seen before, you suddenly pay attention. It's, it's a new, it's a surprise, and you have that element of suspense again. So it's extremely important to anybody in, in the arts telling a story or even in, in advertising. I think it's uh, interesting that you, that you chose that chapter. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the fact that this is not something you want to lead with. One thing I failed to do um, in the beginning here was kind of point out, I mean, we could talk for 12 hours about this book and, and its applications to, to marketing and, and advertising, but obviously we'll, we'll be jumping just a few really kind of choice places here. And there's a reason for my, my madness, um, so to speak, in this. And, and with suspense, with this idea of suspense, uh, Robert, what we what we talk about in Copy Blogger a lot is content marketing. So, as opposed to the the one hit ad that has to grab you and and sell you, you know, in one moment, say, oh. what we talk about a lot in content marketing is, and this is a sales page, so to speak, that can go on for years. Stories that we're telling about our companies um, or about our ideas for years, and people are coming in. And dropping out at certain points along that continuum, but the idea of suspense over the long haul. Right. Yes, I mean, that's the main thing um, about a story or a seduction is that it occurs over time. If you just do one thing that's unpredictable, suddenly... uh, It's not really necessarily seductive, but if over a course of several weeks in which you've planted the seed with, let's say, I'm... I'm being male-centric here, but you're seducing a woman over the course of several weeks or months. She's been sort of lulled into this pattern that you've given, and then you surprise her with something. You take her somewhere. You do something that she hasn't expected. Coming out of this process, this period of time in which she's had her expectations created, and then you go against it, it's very powerful. And you go against it again, and, and you work on that. But it has to be, the element of time is extremely important. The the surprise, the junk idea is to surprise somebody in a one-off thing, as you mentioned. That's easy to do. In fact, we're kind of also gotten a little sick of it. It's more like, how do you sustain people's attention over time and keep them suspended over weeks and months? That's the real trick. Yeah. Uh, chapter six, it seems like a, maybe a smaller kind of tactical thing as opposed to long-term or, or larger strategy, but you talk about insinuation mm-hmm. and you mentioned just a, a moment ago about dropping hints and planting seeds mm-hmm. long before you can expect any kind of return on the efforts that you're, you're putting in. And we see this all the time in great you know, marketing and advertising campaigns. Apple is phenomenal um, about this. They're, they're famous uh, secrecy. Uh, leading up to you know launches of new products or new new software, 
Can you point to a way maybe that a writer can use insinuation to connect with readers more deeply? It really depends on the medium. I, uh, let's uh, back up and, and explain a little bit of the philosophy behind it and then go from there. The, the idea is that um, in any kind of seduction, you want to engage the other person's willpower. And that will, that will uh, pertain to any on any level political, marketing, sexual. If you're just pushing someone around telling them to do this or that, we're naturally resistant, stubborn people that like to listen to ourselves. But if you engage their willpower where they think that, that the idea that, they, that popped up in their head is their own, when in fact it really came from you, then suddenly you're in a whole different league. Mm. They think that that was their thought. They, their willpower is engaged and their now completely open to any other kind of maneuver. So in, in my work, in my, in my writing, if I'm going to come back to your question, I like to make the stories sort of open-ended and make it so that I bait them in a way where you can relate them to your boss. I'm talking about Louis Fourteenth. But man, that really sort of applies to my boss, or it applies to my girlfriend, or it applies to my and and when you do that, then they their imagination is engaged. You want the person on the other end to be thinking on their own, imagining, taking your words and moving with them. And that's that's the whole that's the whole game of seduction right there. So there's a time to be very specific, obviously, but you're saying uh, that there is also great power in not being overt. Right. Um, it sneaks I mean, in, it, it comes specific, under... Specific can, can be good in, in, uh, in marketing, uh, giving people facts and figures about what your product can do. And that's sort of the old school of way. And actually, right. for me, I think it's sometimes quite effective. In a seduction, I really don't recommend the specific approach as far as like a sexual or political seduction, I don't think you have much to gain. You want to create mystery. You want to create an air of fantasy. You want people to imagine and project their own ideas onto what you're doing or what you're saying. Um, and really, in marketing something, even marketing a political figure or a business person or a public figure, you want people to start projecting onto that person and seeing whatever you want them to see in him or her. And so you, you, you can't be too vague, um, then it falls apart. It's a kind of a very difficult strategy. But usually being too specific creates a sense of familiarity with what you're showing people. And then the seduction circuit, the electricity is kind of cut off at that point when people think they know exactly what you're talking about. Enter their spirit. Mm -hmm. And this to me is, uh, is one of the big ones. But in copywriting, one of the most important tools in our box is to as much as is humanly possible through research, through you know, knowing your product cold, is to in fact know your audience, to know who you're writing to. Mm -hmm. And what are some ways that we can write more directly to a person's needs and desires based on this chapter in your book? Well, God, you know, I could speak for uh, years on this. It's probably the greatest problem uh, that people have um, in, in seduction 
because our tendency is we're, we're in our own heads. And in, in our culture nowadays, it's so dangerous because with all of the distractions that, are, that we have, and we tend to be in our heads more than ever. And it's very hard to focus on other people. Um, like maybe 40 years ago, it wouldn't have been so difficult. And you really have to get into the habit of putting yourself into other people's positions, into their skin, into their way of thinking as deeply as possible, getting rid of all of your preconceptions politically, etc., and putting yourself 100% in that individual or in that group. With a group that you're trying to market to, it's a little more complicated, but now in this day and age, it is so much easier to get a direct relationship to your audience and to understand their needs uh, through the internet. I talk a lot about this in the 50th law. I have a whole chapter on it in 50th law about how to maintain the incredible closeness to your customers and to be able to think like them. You don't want to become a complete copy of the person that you're trying to market to. There's still an element of leading them, of bringing your own spirit. Uh, but most people sin on the sense of, of foisting their own values and their own ideas on other people. Um, I, I'm really not, there's so much I could talk about. Maybe if you, if you direct me a little bit here on, on something specific about entering their spirit, but it, it's something that a lot of people are bad at. I'll tell you that. Yeah. How about this? Uh, one thing you mentioned, uh, briefly is the access that we have to the thoughts, ideas, desires, and, and needs of people through social media. I mean, you, you could yep. do a real basic search on Twitter or Facebook or wherever, um, just either of your close circle or a broader, broader circle of people. Obviously, it's an effective approach, but in terms of a way to use that, a way to think about looking at that data that could be helpful um, for a writer trying to understand you know, this specific group. It's really difficult to say. Um, as, as for me, as a writer of books, um, I use it in – I have a little different approach. I don't really want to hear the opinion of 10,000 people. Uh, I'm, too, I'm too easily influenced by the opinions of other people. I know that might sound surprising, but I've learned that about myself. If I get too many opinions – um, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, yeah. um, I get I could become paralyzed. But I love and I need feedback because when you write something, you're never really aware of how people how it's going to affect people. You're in your own head, and you have your own subjectivity. And then you write something, a story or a bit of advertising, and people take it much differently. It becomes an object out there, and you yourself can't judge it. You need another pair of eyes. I've my system is I got people that I trust. I have five, ten people that I, I, I submit my work to. They say, this is working, this isn't working. I pay so much attention to it. I have no ego. I, I had four best-selling books, but if this one of these people says, this isn't working, my ears are up there. I understand you're right. I think it's your ego that often gets in the way. Mm-hmm. And then recently... Um, uh, I've been talking about my new book, and uh, this man asked me the title. I told him, and he said, you know, this would be a better title. Oh, you know, you're right. And I've then subsequently asked 10 other people that I trust, and they all agree. All right, I'm going to change the title. It's just a little bit about how you are. Some people, like there's a writer in Brazil, his name escapes me, Paul Coelho, I think Coelho. his name. Yep. Who 
uses the internet and and Twitter and Facebook to basically d- discover how he's going to write his next novel. And he's a very right. legit writer and a very good writer. I could never do that. Right. Um, One of the best-selling novelists of all time and um, how he uses social media and how he uses the internet. I, I could never do it either. But there's a lesson there. I think, you know, at some point I would like to try that actually, maybe with a novel or a book. I would actually like to see that as a, as a sort of an experiment and see what came from it. I think it'd be fascinating. So I, I'm open to that as well. Let's, uh, let's close it out with a final question about this new book that you're working on. I think it is particularly of interest to our audience at Copyblogger. A question we get a lot around here is, you know, some kind of version of how do I get better at writing? And you, uh, more than most, know that there are all kinds of techniques. You, Robert Greene, some of them work, some of them don't. This book is tentatively titled Mastery. Um, yes. uh, if it's a if it's a tray if it's a deep dark secret we don't need to reveal it here uh, unless you want to. No, <laughs> From the little I've come across, and no, uh, I don't want to oversimplify. It seems that you're trying to get to the root of the questions. Number one, what should I do? And number two, how do I become excellent at it? What examples and advice can you give copy blogger readers based on those two questions? Well, I, that's the opening, really the opening chapter of the book. I call it your life's task, what you were meant to do in life. And it's by far the most critical question you will ever answer. Uh, because I, I would maintain that 70, 80% of the people out there are in the wrong career, the wrong profession. They got in for the wrong reasons often for money or for attention, usually for money. And because it's a bad fit, things start going wrong in their lives. And um, Do you think 70 to 80%? Yeah, I really do. I really do. Entrepreneurs are generally following uh, something deep from deep within. It's not a perfect fit. I, I make the point, I call it, you get in touch with something. Every human being is unique. Everybody has a a set of DNA that will never repeat in the, in, the, in the future or has ever happened before. There's something about you that's completely different. It's not a cliche. I'm not making it up. And you need to know that and feel it very deeply. And it can be related to something very primal, like it could be writing or it could be interest in color and design. It can be mathematical and patterns. And that means you can branch off into six or to seven different particular fields. It's not something narrow like that. But a lot of people are very much uh, mismatched. And so I'm going to be going in length in the book about how you really connect with that sort of primal thing in you that makes you different from other people. For me, it was um, writing and and I, as I said, I kind of bounced into the wrong areas of writing and then I found the right fit. It can take 5, 10, 15 years, but it's a process. And once you find it, God, everything, you know, f- fits in your life. So, you know, it really depends. Some people know when they're six years old what it is, and some people have a harder time, but it doesn't mean anything because I talk in the book, I just finished writing about Charles Darwin. He's one of the stars in this book, one of the greatest geniuses that ever lived. He was a lost young man who had no idea what he was going to do. His father thought he was a loser, washed up. Uh, What am I going to do with this son of mine? And then finally, when he's 22 years old, he graduates uh, university. He goes off on this five-year voyage on a ship, uh, which he didn't really even ask for the job. And suddenly he finds himself in his mid-20s. He discovers what that was. It can happen later in life. 
Um, but it ha- you have to be the one that that goes through that introspective process of examining it. You know, if you want to be a writer because you like the attention or the lifestyle, then please don't get into it. It's a terrible. It's a rough life. It may, may not pay well for a while. You have to be alone a lot. You have to get into writing because there's something in you that needs to be expressed, and it's very deep. Otherwise, you're not going to succeed at it. Now, as for you know, how to make yourself into a better writer, you know, I make the point in there that it, it really is not a matter of genetics. It's not a matter of you're born with talent. I mean, there's an element of that. I don't deny it. It's really about your tenacity and your determination. If you think and believe that you're a, a, a someone who can write or you want to write, then it's really a matter of actually doing it. Um, you know, there's the cliche of 10,000 hours, but it really is means something. So you have to find out which form of writing uh, suits you. You have to find a voice. Um, reading a lot is, a, is an incredible help. You can't be a writer unless you read, vor- I say voraciously, because reading imprints in you patterns of, of thinking and expressing yourself, filling your head with ideas. You have to be a, a reader. It doesn't matter what you read. It can be comic books, but you have to be reading a lot. And um, you have to be practicing it all of the time. You don't, you don't need to go to university to study writing of any level. You just do it. You just do it. It's the only thing you can do. Uh, you don't need expensive equipment, and you can be anywhere and just practice and, and repetition and then getting feedback from people. But you have to have a real stomach for being alone. And if you don't have that stomach for for sitting in front of a desk and not being able to see people maybe for weeks on end, don't get into it. I, all the writers I know are people that can enjoy actually being alone a lot. The, and the hammer drops. It's it's absolutely true. And I'm, I'm very glad you're, you're being uh, explicit about that. But uh, you have experienced it firsthand and, and you continue to experience it, right? Even at your uh, uh, level, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, um, now I've been doing this the books for, um, let's say, 15 years, a little bit more, and you get better and better at it. I'm not saying my writing is, is necessarily, I feel like it is. It, I'm, I'm learning things as I go along continually. The whole point of the book that I'm writing now called Mastery is you reach a point of mastery. Now, I'm not saying I have reached it, but the feeling when you get there is what I'm trying to describe. And the feeling is really exciting and really pleasurable. It means mm. ideas come to you out of nowhere. You have a, what I call a fingertip feel, an intuitive feel for what's right. Um, you're just sitting there writing and all of a sudden, wow, an idea comes you don't know where. You get to that point after you've experienced it for so many years, after you've done it for so many years. There's no drug you can take, no class you can take, no shortcut out there, no guru who can make you skip the five, the ten years. You've got to do it yourself. What's uh, Do you have a publication date? Well, uh, I'm behind on my deadline. <laughs> but the, the publication date is uh, September of next year. Okay. All right. All goes well. So let's wrap this up. I, I do want to uh, let folks know listening that this show is sponsored by Internet Marketing for Smart People, which is, um, of course, the premier online marketing course delivered straight to your email inbox. This is uh, the best that copyblogger.com has to offer, wrapped in a nice little package for you. Well, 20 completely free little packages, to be precise. Just head over to imfsp.com and drop your email address into the little box you'll see there. 
and we will take care of the rest. Robert, where can people get more of you and, and find your work online? Well, I have a website. Um, I'm, I'm afraid it's been a little bit fallow for about a year now, uh, but it's, it's www.powerseductionandwar.com. The and is written out. Okay. That's powerseductionandwar.com. Uh, I have quite a few blog posts, but they're, as I said, they're a little bit old. Um, and information and connections to all my books and things like that. And right. I will be blogging again as soon as this book is over. Great. That's powerseductionandwar.com. I'll link that up in the show notes for everybody. Mm-hmm. Thanks to everybody for listening out there. Mr. Green, I thank you for your books, and I thank you for coming on our show. Well, thank you, Robert. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, 